Bismillahirrahmanirrahim in the name of Allah the gracious the merciful good afternoon peace be upon you and welcome to another episode of the drive time show here on the voice of Islam today with myself Raza brother Qiyum and brother Safir over the next two hours we will be with you and as always you can give us a call on 0208-687-7878 Usually, as uh, is the procedure here at the Drive Time Show, we have two separate <coughs> topics that we discuss. Um, and as I mentioned at the beginning, where we ask you to send us your comments, to send us your tweets, to give us a call if you would like to contribute. Right now, today, we will be speaking about, over the next two hours, about what is happening in the Middle East. So... That is, again, uh, something that happened, something that started 12 days ago <coughs> on the 7th of October. And by now, everyone is probably aware of the situation which is unfolding in Israel and the Gaza Strip. Many people are calling it a war. It has been officially called a war. Many people are calling it a genocide. Of course, it's an extremely volatile situation with many angles to consider and to focus on. So over the next two hours, we'll be considering very briefly, very, very briefly, the history of the region, the most recent events unfolding, the media coverage of it, and of course, the need for justice above all else in order to bring true and everlasting peace. And also what the global community can and should actually do to help those who have been affected by this ongoing crisis. As always, we'd love to hear from you. We're asking you a question on Instagram, which is about this topic. What are, and again, look, this is something that everybody has been affected in one way or another. Um, I will start with the gentleman here in the studio about uh, uh, you know this whole situation unfolding and what that makes them feel but i think everybody has an opinion everybody has not just an opinion but everybody has emotions and feelings attached to this uh, specific topic so we would like to ask you if you could share some of your thoughts some of your emotions um, anything that goes through your head your feelings on the israel-palestine situation that is unfolding as we speak Safir, yeah, uh, I mean, it's uh, it, it's very tragic. I mean, of course, we we all know. As soon as we saw the pictures um, of what was happening, um, and and we see how um, how how 
people have been suffering uh mm. you know on both sides um through this kind of conflict uh it, it's it's heartbreaking i think a lot of people are very very emotional at this uh time uh especially because of what is uh happening what what we are seeing uh you know pictures of which is uh, utterly utterly devastating but i think it's very important to also be mindful that this is uh, we we live in a very you know a uh, strange time very dangerous time in mm. fact where w- this is not the only conflict there are so many uh conflicts happening around <coughs> the world people are on the edge you know mm. um just because of this uh, within the two weeks time there's been such an increase in islamophobia it's been such an increase in antisemitism as well so we have to uh remember that whatever we do whatever we say we have to try to bring people together and try to bring about peace and justice about yeah all. a justice yes absolute justice yes brother kim i don't seem to remember well i do seem to remember i think uh, the last it's it's even bad to call it event but the last historic global um I- event that took place that had people think about where the world is heading in my opinion was maybe 911 where everybody seemed to be involved in one way or another opinions were split justice and and the lines of what is right and what is wrong were kind of blurred and it was again this east against west it's islam against whatever you want to call it um name and shame blame game all of these things all at once see i find it interesting you said both of your brothers talked about how in the past 12 days you now mentioned 911 mm. these are events that happened within the west where the west was affected the palestine uh, conflict has been going on since 1948 mm. way before 911 yet it was 911 which was the main event such events have been happening in palestine for decades before then so it's not it, it it's important to emphasize the point that the reason why these have become big issues are because now they're hitting home meaning here yeah mm. you know there's this uh, writer poet in in uh, in palestine he wrote yeah. calm is when gaza is bombed janine is invaded homes are bulldozed journalists are shot ambulances are attacked schools are tear gassed and palestinians are massacred but calm is shattered when israel is attacked and of course the narrative here isn't anti-israel this this automatic assumption is what needs to be challenged look i think yes i i fully agree with you but i think for those of you who listen to voice of islam i've i've we have received so many comments we have received so much feedback talking about the fact that we're not here to pick sides no we're, we're not, not here to instigate we're not here to arouse the emotions of one group in society so that they can be put against the other which is again something that we will come to later on in the program my my issue our issue um with with how the media portrays any kind of story how that is portrayed and how that is aimed at a specific part in 
in society. So if you do listen to Voice of Islam, you will be fully aware of that, that then in no circumstances, under no situation, have we ever, was ever the aim to, to do that and to follow that narrative that you see in mainstream media, regardless of which side of the world you're talking about. Our fo- focus at Voice of Islam is, and always has been and it always will be, that as a society, as a country, as a nation, as a world, as a family of humanity, how do we come together? And it has always been the teachings of Islam. It has always been the teachings of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. And then in the latter days, the Promised Messiah, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, who have given us that guidance, who have told us that this is the way forward. If you want to make amends with each other, make amends with your Lord. If you want to see the world flourish, make sure that the bond that you have between you and your creator, that flourishes. Because at the end of the day, we're all God's I, children or whatever you want to call it. There's no denying that. But I think, you know, the word Brother Safir used earlier at the beginning when he was talking about it. Yes, you're right. It isn't about whose side it's on. The key word here is one can only achieve what you're just explaining is if justice is served. Absolutely. If and, and that's the topic, that's the focal point of what we are discussing for the next hour or an hour and a half or so that... One cannot move forward unless the 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 guidelines, the agenda, the negotiations, mm. whatever you want to call it, if justice is not on the table, yeah, how can we move forward? Exactly, and I think it's true that you know it's not the last twelve days yeah. that that this has been Absolutely an issue. Not, it's been no. before that. Yes. So, but then problem is, yes, of course, where was the media there? Yes. You know, where was the outcry there when, when innocent people were being uh, killed, slaughtered? So this is this is what we want to outline, what we want to focus on as well, is the absolute need for absolute justice. Because in the absence of justice, we, we, we are seeing in the last decade and more, we are seeing just an increase and increase and increase of conflicts and wars, and there's no solution. But the solution is in fact in absolute justice. But that's how do we achieve that, achieve that and how do we make people realize that you have to, um, you know, think about whole of humanity. You have to think about um, the people who have no, um, you know, power, no uh, might. You have to also look at their rights, whereas you are always focusing on the rights of the people who are in power or who, ha- who ha- have some kind of, um, you know, allegiance with you. So the country, this this kind of unfair treatment is the root cause of many, many, or if not all of the conflicts in the world today. May I, if I may, just give one example. You know, in October 2022, the the chairman of the chair, the the president of United e- EU, mm. in October 22, sent a tweet out saying that uh, Russia has threatened Ukraine to cut food to cut water, to cut electricity, and to cut gas and heating from Ukraine as winter is coming. And the word she used was, this is truly, this is truly a crime of terror. Yeah. And last week, exactly ditto was said by Israel. And the response was, Israel has a right to defend itself mm. again. It isn't about Israel. So, it isn't about Russia. Yeah. It's that double standard where justice is missing. Yeah. 
And I think what I'm thinking about at this moment when you say this is is a verse of the Holy Quran which we mention quite frequently here on our shows because it encapsulates that message that we want to try to, to convey that you need to be just in every circumstance. There's no yes, ifs and buts. Exactly. If it has to be against yourself, be just. If it has to be against your parents, be just. If it has to be against your friends, uphold justice. So that is the thread that we want to take throughout the next two, uh, two hours or yeah. so. But again, not not just the two hours, mm. but every thing and every show that we have here on the Voice of Sound, which again is is the underlying factor. Yeah, and as I think th- throughout the show, we'll be speaking to a few guests as well who will join us, and I think that will kickstart the conversation. Um, so the first guest we have for today is uh, Michael Tracy, uh, who is uh, a journalist um, and is joining us uh, on the line at the moment. Michael, assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Welcome to the Drive Time Show and thank you very much for joining us today. Nice to be back with you. Good to have you back. Um, now, Michael, October 7th was a tragic day and the international response was that Israel has the complete right to defend herself. I want to ask you, that: do you think that the international community should then hold any responsibility for for what transpired and and the humanitarian crisis that we are seeing unfolding and have been seeing for the for the past couple of days happening in Gaza well when people in positions of power just repeat over and over again that real I'm sorry I'm getting horrible yeah, feedback I think I, I have my voice. we have we have the same issue here so we're gonna try to reconnect to you Michael I, I do apologize for that um, so if I can maybe request the team in the background to, to reconnect to Michael so we don't have that echo, uh, you know, how it is in these live shows. But I think going back two weeks, uh, yeah. going back to October 7th, um, I mean, I remember when I saw the pictures of, um, you know, uh, Hamas uh, going into Israel and, uh, and, and you know, we saw pictures on, on social media. At that moment, I was thinking, this is not good. This is not good because... Because it's life. Because it's life, you know, and, and uh, innocent people will come, will be, will be, will, will be uh, you know, uh, in, the, in the crossfire, whether mm. it's, you know, against the military or whether it's against uh, uh, any other um, party. But innocent people, we cannot... Uh, allow yeah. uh, lives to be lost, but also what I what I s- clearly saw that you know this will not be good for also the Palestinians because you we know throughout the history no way. how things happen yeah. right. All right, let me let me try to reconnect to to Michael now, Michael. Yes, is that an, oh yeah that that sounds a bit better on my side. Hopefully, it's it's better on your side as well. Yeah, better better for me. Good. All right. Well, um, praise be to God. Alhamdulillah. <laughs> um, uh, okay. Yeah. So, 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 what you're. So, I was going to say that when you have this mantra being repeated over and over again, Israel has a right to defend itself, or we stand with Israel. What do those exhortations really function as? It's just giving a total license for Israel to do effectively whatever it wishes. Even Biden going to Israel yesterday, meeting with Netanyahu, was apparently intended as sort of a PR move to act as though. Israel is being implored to at least gesture towards certain humanitarian accommodations for the offensive that it's waging, which is almost... You can't invade a country 
in a humanitarian fashion or invade a territory in a humanitarian way, like as though you're dropping the bombs with love and tenderness. Um, but that's what Biden is doing because effectively what he's doing is granting authorization on behalf of the United States to Israel to essentially wage a vengeance campaign. I mean, you don't really have to speculate. Just look at what people in the Israeli Knesset or what Israeli um, diplomatic officials across the border are saying is the intention of this. Sometimes they can be a bit more, um, you know, restrained in how they're characterizing Israeli intentions to kind of appeal to an international audience and maintain what they see as this consensus of international support. But if you see what Israeli like parliamentarians are saying amongst themselves, they're likening the wrath that to unleash on Gaza, and they already have, of course, but they're getting ready apparently to do this full-scale invasion. Um, they're likening it to the ruthlessness which, with the Allied powers, prosecuted the Second World War, meaning total defeat, no other option other than to completely obliterate the enemy and eradicate from the face of the earth what Hamas, which they're saying now on the order of Hitler or of the Nazi Party. That's what mm. that's the stakes that they're ascribing to this, and so that means all constraints are removed from them. And the United States is right, uh, right as usual, leading the pack in giving Israel the kind of pre-authorization to conduct their offensive in this manner. So, where exactly, Michael? Where, where, where do, you, where does the international community then stand? What's their responsibility? What's their accountability? What's their role then in this? Well, I mean, the international community is an incredibly <laughs> expansive, sort of vague sure. concept. But you know, one thing I would one thing I would say is, and I just uh, recalling the response to the initial Hamas attack, is I think it would behoove people who do look at what Israel is doing with skepticism and are cognizant of the grave humanitarian toll that's being inflicted, not to romanticize unduly the Hamas attack, which I saw some of initially, where they're saying, oh, the Palestinians, because they have been in the subjugated state for all these decades, they're now somehow being emancipated, or they're liber being liberated hmm. by this courageous Hamas offensive. Well, wh what has been the consequence of that offensive so far, the, the attack, the operation that Hamas launched? It's the further immiseration of the people in Gaza. It's not, nobody's being liberated as far as I can see. In fact, they're expelled from the north of Gaza. What, all 1.2 million are at least being told that they have to vacate. They're being bombed in hospitals, and they're being threatened with an imminent ground invasion. So I don't know who was liberated or emancipated by the Hamas attack. That's one thing. But on the, on the other hand, it, like just try to be as rational as possible in, ha in ha how these countries are justifying themselves. The United States yesterday vetoed a U.N. Security Council resolution that would have just created a minor humanitarian pause simply to bring in medical supplies because they said the resolution did not contain yet another affirmation of Israel's right to self-defense. So anybody who's confused that the United States affirms that concept, hmm. which obviously makes no sense. So it's just a matter of trying to be more than a bit of like a rational detachment from how people are approaching the subject. And then I would say just, I mean, the highest principle I have to the extent that I have one is mitigating the death and destruction um, across the board. And if people have other interests that they're trying to advance, I look at that with a bit of uh, wariness. So, so Michael, just to, to look at it from another aspect, right? <laughs> if you look at it from the side of Israelis who, who you know, might say that, you know, this uh, our civilians have been killed 
and we need to go after those people who have killed civilians and and obviously as human beings we have to uh you know uh, uh denounce the death of every civilian so what what is a justifiable uh cause or what is the correct way for them or should be to you know uh to 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 go after those people who have uh, who have taken hostages for example or killed their people yeah, this is another reason why i think it's so wrong headed for anybody to try to imbue hamas with any kind of virtue or grandiosity because you know I, for example i have a friend of mine who was born on a kibbutz in israel and these kibbutzim they tend to be the more left wing tisnik factions of israeli society who are much more interested in some kind of reconciliation with the Palestinians, and he was telling me that he had a dream growing up where, you know, it was like this recurring nightmare where there was maybe like fighters coming up a hill and like killing them in sleep or something. You know, nothing like that ever happened with him, but it was sort of like a fear that was maybe in the air that was being instilled in him even from an early age. And what Hamas did was actually like a physical incarnation of that very nightmare that a lot of people have in Israel. So that's why you see such a visceral response and the desire for vengeance. Now, of course, people, when they're, when there's a grave wrong inflicted on them and there are there's a massacre of innocence it's a natural impulse for people to want to again take revenge but revenge is not a rational impulse for the most part it doesn't actually rectify the wrong it's maybe a, a, a give some short-term emotional gratification but if it creates even more death and destruction then people i think ought to be able to at least strive to detach from that and become a bit more dispassionate in their analysis of what the proper way forward is. I mean, look, after on September 11th in the, in the U.S., there was another grave wrongdoing committed in that there was, you know, thousands of innocent people killed. But then in a spirit of revenge, what did the United States do? It invaded and occupied two countries that really had not all that much to do with those initial attacks. You had Afghanistan, quote, maybe harbored al-Qaeda to some respect, but that was dealt with very quickly after the initial Invasion, and it was only in 2021 that the United States finally left. So that just shows you how extreme a, a reaction can be that it prompts mm. such an irrational response. You deal with the ramifications of that for years onward. Um, Michael, the, the the narrative that mainstream media plays, and, and even um, we are talking at the moment of uh, uh, Hamas, the Palestinian mm -hmm. problem has been around since '48. Hamas came around in 87. In fact, they became a um, military wing in 1991. Hamas isn't Palestinians, yet even with the mainstream media, they, they talk about how they are taking revenge. Fine, so be it. Then take it out on Hamas. But as you so rightly mentioned earlier, even the social media... That even, in fact, I was watching this morning, CNN were interviewing a Israeli soldier who said it. He said, look, we're not coming after Hamas. We are coming after everyone. Yet no one picks up on that narrative. So as much as Hamas is being blamed for it, the Palestinians are paying the price for it. And with this, right. call me cynical, but this, this, this uh, evacuation from the south to the north... That's something politically the the current government would have wanted anyway, wouldn't it, over, the, over time, to empty Gaza? 
Oh, I think we just lost Michael. I do apologize. The line just dropped. Um, should we try to reconnect him? I think uh, if we could, this one more question we would like to pose to Michael, but then uh, I think we're going to have to move on, unfortunately. Now, we were saying uh, at the beginning of the show that we are also going to take a brief look at the history of uh, this 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 area. I wouldn't say this conflict, but this area in, in general. Now, it is deeply rooted in a long-standing dispute over territory and national identity in the Middle East. And as we said, its origin goes back to the early, to the late 19th and early 20th century during the decline of the Ottoman Empire and the rise of the nationalist movements. But before we continue, let's, let's try to go back to Michael. Michael, sorry about that. I think yeah. the line just dropped. Yeah, yeah. So on, on your point about there being a distinction between Hamas and Palestinians, obviously I agree. By the way, Hamas also staged an armed takeover of Gaza in 2007, so it's not like they're operating with a a great deal of democratic popular approval. But even leaving that aside, when Israeli officials, as they sometimes do, insist that they are only going after Hamas, they are mindful of the civilian toll, and they're going to go about their military offensive with the utmost humanitarianism, it almost is a ruse unto itself, because if you're invading Gaza, if you're bumping the sky, if you're shelling it and it with you, uh, munitions and making and ordering the mass expulsion of 1.2 million people to start, then the people in Gaza, I wouldn't think, really view that as this really conscientious differentiation between and Hamas, like you're affecting everybody in Gaza regardless. You are inflicting a collective punishment, and the distinction that you claim that you're honoring really in practice doesn't mean anything. Now, sometimes there's certain Israeli officials outright and say, which I think is the more honest way of putting it, look, we don't make any distinction between Gaza and Hamas, or any, everyone in Gaza is culpable. There's been male, members of the Israeli Knesset who will say, we need to flatten the entire place, show no mercy. I mean, they, you, I'm sure you know, the Israeli commander on the ground said that we're instituting this total siege because Gaza is full of, human, of animal-like uh, That's people. Right. Yes. Yep. Uh, but, but, but by the way, I don't know any, I don't know any uh, animal species, uh, species <laughs> that uh, massacre each other, so I think he's giving short shrift to the animals there. Um, maybe he should look to emulate the animals for a more virtuous way of conduct- conducting themselves. But... Um, that, but they, they really aren't... In pra- I mean, if you're invading a country, the, the practical reality of that is that as much as you might want to insist that you're going to acknowledge some principal distinction between the enemy and the inhabitants, the same carnage is wrought on everybody. So it's not like that this differentiation really makes a whole lot of difference, ultimately. Um, you know, I mean, do the people of Iraq say, oh... They just were going after Saddam Hussein in the Ba'ath Party, so it's fine, even though they wrecked all of our infrastructure and they uh, sent us hurtling into this like death spiral of yeah. internecine conflict. I don't think so. Michael, lastly there, before we let you go, we can talk about what happened, we can talk about what's happening all day long, all week long, maybe for the next year as well. But how, where do we go from here? I think we've we've established and we know on all sides uh, we have casualties, civilian casualties. We're not talking about military. We're not talking about those who are in active combat and active duty. 
Because again, that's that's a different situation. That's a different discussion for the civilians, for the humanitarian catastrophe that is unfolding in that area. Where do we go to de-escalate the situation? Long-term solution? Are there any on the horizon? Well, you know, the thing that I'm paying the closest attention to is the prospect for escalation, because there are people in the U.S. Mm. who are saying it's a foregone conclusion that this will escalate into a wider conflict. The former defense secretary and CIA director, Leon Panetta, in the uh, Obama administration, he was on TV last night basically saying it's a fait accompli that Hezbollah is going to become a combatant, and the United States could be drawn in to fight Hezbollah and by proxy uh, Iran. That's right. I was actually at the Liver I was at the Labor Party conference last week in Liverpool and there was a Ukrainian MP there who was trying to explain to me why it is that Russia was somehow to blame for the Hamas attack because they have this military relationship with Iran who is the sponsor of, of Hamas. That's the claim anyway. Mm -hmm. We're trying to bring in China. Mm -hmm. Nikki Haley, this Republican presidential candidate in the US, is casting it as this broad-based geopolitical struggle that Iran, that uh, Israel rather is now the um, staging ground for Netanyahu. If you listen to his rhetoric, he's saying that the entire free world has to unite, just as they united against the Nazis in World War II. So they're creating a framework in which they're almost trying to will into existence this escalation that they also claim that they're trying to avoid. But the U.S. now has two carrier strike groups: these, you know, uh, aircraft carriers with fighter jets and on them in the eastern Mediterranean with their missiles pointed directly at Iran, and then they're going to say, oh, we had no idea that that could be perceived as escalatory. Sorry, everybody. No, but, but the, nobody wants to rein in the entire the most controversial thing that you can advocate for in the American political system, and they're all agitating for more and more intensification of the war, and we don't know what that could spiral into. So it's a very perilous situation. All right, Michael, thank you very much for that. Uh, it was always good to speak to you. Thank you very much again for your time, and uh, let's see how this and uh, the future unfolds. Um, Michael, good to speak to you. Thank you. All right, nice chatting. Goodbye. It was, it was an interesting point there that Michael was making that this conflict at this very moment of time has the potential to... to, to increase and engulf... Escalate and escalate, yes. de-escalate. Yes. And that's something that we, uh, as a world, don't want, right? Okay, it's something we don't want. But what's the what's the alternative? We are talking about de-escalation. Michael has is rightfully so. He's he's pointing out um, that we need to we need to calm things down. Things need to be looked at a bit more rationally. Emotion needs to be kind of take a take a back seat. But then I but then. But One we don't want it to calm back down to atrocities. Be but but this is the point. Yeah, this is the point that okay, we want calm. Hmm. Let's go back to thirteen days ago, fourteen days ago, and then everything's back to back to square one. Palestine is in the situation it's in, and let's forget about it and move on, and let them be. That isn't on the table anymore. It cannot be on the table anymore. And the fact that I think it was yesterday. That uh, I can't remember who put the resolution in in United Nations, Brazil, uh, and it was vetoed by the United States. Brazil. Now, yeah. if if somebody is putting a resolution for, cease for a ceasefire, yeah. for crying for out loud, for people to get uh, breathing space, that's to, it. To actually, it's it's like let's say okay, ceasefire, and then negotiate. 
whatever needs to be done. But at the outset, if it's going to be vetoed, then it isn't. It's someone like me. I would think, oh, there's something wrong here. We we everyone's talking about ceasefire. Everyone's talking about calming. Yet the best place we have available to us to ask for a ceasefire is being vetoed. All right. His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed, the current Caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Community, has spoken on this in his last Friday sermon on the 13th of October. Even in a state of war, Islam does not permit the killing of women, children, elderly, and innocent civilians. The Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, gave strict instructions against doing so. In this recent escalation of the war, Hamas made the first move and attacked Israeli citizens. Leaving aside for a moment the fact that innocent people have been unjustly killed by the Israeli army, Muslims should ensure that they always adhere to the teachings of Islam. Where the Israeli army has carried out injustices, that is on them, and there are better and lawful ways to address that. If there is a legitimate state of war, it should be entirely limited to the respective armies and never against innocent women, children, elderly, and civilians. In this respect, the action Hamas took must be condemned. Whatever injustice and cruelty they committed, the response to that or war should have been restricted to Hamas, which is, I think, something that everybody is saying at the moment. However, the indiscriminate response of the Israeli government is extremely dangerous, and it seems that this conflict will not end here, the question that we asked to Michael. In fact, it cannot even be imagined how many innocent women, children, elderly, and civilian will lose their lives. This, again, I, I say this was last week, Friday. The Israeli government has suggested it will destroy Gaza, to this, and to this end, they have carried out severe and overwhelming bombardment. They have turned the city to dust. Now, the most recent development is and that the Israeli government is telling a million or so people to leave northern Gaza immediately. Can I, can I put some narrative on here and just to put things in perspective? We have our guests waiting. 300,000 Russians have died in the Ukraine-Russia um, war and half a million Ukrainians are said to have died. And, the, you know, that's a lot of life loss. And when I speak to people, they can't believe those figures, but yeah. those are reality. And the fear is not to escalate this scenario where we get to that point again very quickly. Yeah. Our next guest for today is uh, Tasneem, who is uh, with us on the line. And we would like uh, Tasneem Yassin. She's a British-born Palestinian with family in Gaza at the moment. Tasneem, good afternoon. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Draft Time Show. Hello. Thank you very much, first of all, for, for joining us today. Um, I know it's a very difficult time for you because, as I mentioned, you have pal- uh, family in Palestine. You have p- family in that area at the moment. We hope, we pray uh, for everyone in, 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 in Palestine, in Gaza, in that area, in the Middle East, wherever they may be, that may God protect them. But I would like to ask you, um, do you have any information? Do you know how they are? Do you have any contact with them? Uh, yes, alhamdulillah, my current family is okay. Um, most of them are situated in the north, so they haven't been harmed or targeted. But um, although I don't have you know, any direct family, I do believe that all these distant Palestinians, they're my brothers and sisters in Islam, and I feel as though we should all care about them and grieve in our hearts for them. Of course. And... Uh, uh, recently, of course, there was uh, 
you know, um, a cutoff of the electricity. Were you able to um, kind of stay in contact with them? Were they able to update you on their safety and what the situation is right now um, in, in Gaza? Unfortunately, it's very kind of patchy. Um, it's not easy getting a hold of people because, you know, since electricity has been cut out for a long time now, people's phones are running out of charge. Um, there's no, you know, Wi-Fi and things like that. It's not easy to contact a lot of people. Tasneem, what's the... You're, you're directly affected. Where do you see this going? Could you repeat that? It's kind of... I said you're 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 directly affected, and you you get first hand um, information from uh, from from um, from Palestine itself. What 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 is happening on the ground at the moment in 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 uh, Palestine? Uh, from from what I've heard um, so far, is Gaza is basically being completely blocked off from the rest of the world. It's described on the media as an open air prison. You know, they're being bombed day and night. There's bloodlines being completely erased. The air they breathe, it's contaminated because they've dropped white phosphorus bombs on them. They, obviously, you know, we, they have no electricity, no fresh water, have a very limited amount of food. Nothing is coming in. Nothing's coming out. They don't have any bomb shelters or safe spaces. You know, even things like UN schools, hospitals, mosques and churches, they're being bombed as well. They have nowhere to go. And it's just one huge humanitarian crisis. And the citizens, their defenses, they're completely trapped. They get told to evacuate from one side of Gaza to the other. And then they get mocked and bombed as they are fleeing. And once they flock together, they're just grouped up and they're bombed. And, mm. you know, Israel announces that and everyone kind of just ignores it. Mm. And then you know, it's just a matter of life and death to over two million people. But in the Israelis' eyes, it just seems like a game of hide and seek. Mm. And I wanted to ask you, uh, this, where we see, you know, Western nations quickly and very, very uh, straight away saying that Israel has a right to defend uh, itself, uh, whereas it doesn't seem to be any any suggestion whatsoever that Palestinian lives needs to be protected as well. How does this kind of rhetoric, you know, affect uh, people in Gaza as well as Palestinians who are living around the world, such as yourself, you know, who have family there? Um, I think the reason why, you know, a lot of Western bodies have said Israel can defend itself, they're mainly regarding, you know, it's mainly regarding Hamas and attacks from Hamas. But the misunderstanding, I think, that is not being talked about is that Hamas is simply just a group that contains Palestinians, but they don't represent every single Palestinian in Palestine or around the world because they're not just a militant group, they're a political faction, and they have many non-combatant organizations under their association. And not every single Palestinian supports Hamas. At times like this, where there is so much aggression, they kind of become sympathetic and understand the motive of Hamas's retaliation. They're not like they weren't made to become a terrorist organization. They are simply Palestinians who also feel for their own cause. But way they are fighting for that cause is different to how many other Palestinians believe that we should. You you mentioned that, that the difference, does there need to be a separation though in order to move forward? Because at the moment the world is saying Hamas is Palestinian whereas whereas it isn't from, from, from even a lot of commentators here are saying 
Hamas is different. Palestinians are different. Um, in, 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 in the narrative that you have just said, that a lot of Palestinians don't believe what Hamas is doing is correct and the way they're doing is not correct. Do, do you think the way forward has to be a separation? I don't, I'm not quite sure about that. I feel though, because the cause that we, that every Palestinian Hamas is fighting for is a free Palestine at the end of the day. But I feel the way that they are going about it could be different. I feel as though someone more powerful needs to get involved, someone who can actually make a change in the country. Because Hamas itself is a very small group anyways. They've only been around for around 30 years. Hmm. So having said that, Dasneem, what, what do you think, that what sort of response from the international community would you like to see? And have you seen any of that so far? Um, I mean, I've seen around the UK, there's been plenty of protests, you know, social media. When I go online onto Instagram or anything, there's a lot of posts saying to support Palestine, where you can donate when the next protest is. And obviously everyone who stands in solidarity, it's greatly appreciated by the Palestinian people. And, you know, as the Prophet, peace be upon him, once said in a hadith, whoever among you sees an evil action, let him change it with his hand. If he cannot, then with his tongue. And if he cannot, then with his heart. But, you know, I believe that as long as everyone is doing what they can do to the best of their ability, we are incredibly grateful. But there is one thing that could change, you know, because we are just common people. The Western government bodies, they stand very clearly with Israel. They spread their propaganda and their opinion and their bias all over the mainstream media. And these accounts that are posting in pro-Palestine, they shadow ban them and they take them down and they try to silence the voices of those who stand with Palestine, even Palestinians themselves. You know, for for example, Rishi Sunak in England over here, he made his support for Israel very clear, but then his job was threatened and he sent minimal aid to Gaza because the whole reason he was threatened was because he was clearly expressing support for a state that was openly committing multiple war crimes and practically inducing a humanitarian crisis. So, so, you know, a lot of people kind of tend to focus on the West, even the Muslim countries, the Muslim nations, some of them are standing blind. They are not, you know, contributing to their Muslim brothers and sisters. And I feel like this is the most crucial time where they can join together and free Palestine once and for all. British-born Palestinian with family in Gaza, Tasneem Yassin with us on the line. Thank you very much for your time, sister. And again, our hearts uh, and our prayers, our good wishes and everything go out to you, to your family and everyone affected in this conflict. Jazakallah khair once again and uh, assalamu alaikum. You know, the sad part is uh, that uh, this uh, affects mostly children. And this is, you know, a point that you, you, you cannot really get over because 50% yeah. of the population of Gaza are children. And the sad part is that these children are getting killed. They're being slaughtered. On the other side, they will uh, be without parents. And if you look at this whole issue, because we have talked about this, that this is not an issue that has come up two weeks' time. This is a long-standing issue. It seems like it's just a cycle, right? Mm. So that cycle... Imagine kids, right? They s- see their parents die, pass away, yeah, They're being killed. They grow up. What are they going to think? What is going to be in their heart? Hatred, right? Mm-hmm. Hatred is o- always going to breed hate in there. Hate begets hate. 
And what will happen? That hatred will come out in one shape or form. So this this is not a solution to to you know uh, uh, do this kind of bombardment mm-hmm. that uh, affects uh, civilians because it will o- only uh, you know come back and come back to yeah. the same situation. Come back with a vengeance. Yeah, but th- but they've made their point clear. Mm-hmm. So we need to look beyond that. Yeah. What, but that's something in in realistic terms. We can sit here till the cows come home and say, "Look, this shouldn't happen." But when the likes of, as His Holiness Hazrat Mr. Musuramud, the fifth Caliph of the Promised Messiah, may Allah strengthen his hand, he said it. He goes, "We are we are at the moment, the major powers are demonstrating might is right." Yeah. Now, based on that, and or with all the the, the news. Um, that is coming out from the likes of the United States, from the United Kingdom, from Europe. It is about supporting what Israel wants to do. You know, the last thing that uh, our sister mentioned, uh, Tasneem, uh, the the lack of reaction from, from the Muslim world. That is, I remember, I think, what was it, 2000, I think two or three years ago, when we had the huge protest here in London. Again, we went out, I, I went out with a friend of mine for Voice of Islam to conduct some interviews and we spoke to, I think, I was like a bunch of people who were there and this point came up over and over again that the Muslim world, the lack of unity that you see, the lack of leadership that you see within the Muslim world and unified leadership is something that is partially responsible for the situation, not just in Gaza, not just in Palestine, but we have so many Muslim countries where atrocities are being committed. But having said that, the Muslim Ummah, the Muslim people, the Muslim nations, the Muslim governments, they don't seem to be where they should be, having the teachings of Islam, having the guidance of the Holy Quran, having accepted the greatest prophet ever to walk this earth. And it's not like the Muslim countries around there are poor countries. They're very, very wealthy. One of the wealthiest countries in the world in terms of resources, in terms of uh, things that they are capable of, right? They they have been given uh, lots of resources by Allah the Almighty. They have... Uh, but the thing is that it brings me back to the prophecy of the Holy Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. He said, you know, near the end of times, you know, the Muslims will, will not be united. Hmm. And it will be because of their love of dunya, the love of, of, uh, of material world. And this is exactly what is happening, that we fail to see the unity amongst the Muslim nations. If there was unity, if there was a unified voice standing up against atrocities, you know, we are talking about just upholding justice. If we, if Muslims became united and raised up voice against injustice, it will go a long way to stop this. I want to clarify also when 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 you when you say to raise the voice, that is not in violent terms. No, that is not. negotiation. Yes, as in having um, influence, mm. meaning that um, there is, you know, it's. It's like at the moment we all talk of the West, and and the West has got the apparently the the the, high, the the moral high ground, which 
even if it doesn't, it still it demonstrates or is successful hmm. in playing the moral high ground. And the absence of unity um, of of the Arab nations um, has always been the case. In in but but the the positive again, as much as there are negatives there, the positive is that there are some voices that are being um, that, that that are raising their voice. But my fear is that that people will start to interpret, and some some negative people already are doing that. That they will turn this into a religious conflict, whereas this is a geopolitical conflict. It has nothing to do with Islam against Christians or Jews, no. and, and 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 that's the narrative. A lot of people who want to conflate this because Muslims and Jews lived peacefully in exactly. Jerusalem for so many years. Exactly. Yeah. That that's this is where my Together, point yeah. is about yeah. history. Yeah. Historically, um, there's never been an issue. This issue is not religious. This issue is geopolitical. Here with us to speak more on this is our next guest, Yara Mahdi, is joining us now. Yara is a research analyst specializing in the Middle East with a master's in politics in the Middle East. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome to the Draft Time Show, Yara. <clears throat> Thank you very much, first of all, for joining us today. Yara, the words we use to describe the ongoing situation in the Gaza Strip have been the subject of criticism. If you listen to one outlet, they will speak in that way, which is being criticized by the other, etc., etc. I want to ask you if you can talk us through the ways in which certain terms like conflict, like war, like two-sided, etc., how they create a certain perception of, of this issue. And what terms would you recommend would better describe the situation at hand? Yeah, sure. So I think the best thing to do when tackling a question like this is to first provide some very local context, understand the extent and to what level the Zionist public go to in fulfill the movement's ideology. So, Zionism... Yeah, I, 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 I do, do apologise. Um, I think we're going to reconnect because your, your voice is cutting off a little bit here and there. And I really would like to hear what you have to say on this. So uh, we're going to try to reconnect or try to fix that line. Um, but this this is what is creating ripple effects throughout the world. Look, this is happening, no doubt. I mean, it's, the media is covered by that. But you've heard the story about that six-year-old boy mm-hmm. in, in, Chicago, Illinois, in, in, in Chicago, Illinois. Yeah. And how that has impacted that man's decision to completely turn around and commit such terroristic act or terror act whatever you want to call it like inhumane act stabbing a child 26 times whatever there's no words to describe that a child that he was he used to play with like a a person known to you so much so that the mother didn't even reconsider or had no second thoughts letting that man into their house I think this is such a you know disturbing example as you've given that it begs, it, it makes you think that what makes a person, a human being, do this to another human being. And, and that's what it is. Terms like conflict, exactly. terms like us against yeah. them, terms like good against evil, good against evil etc, etc. Yeah. So let's try to bring um, Sister Yara back on the line. Assalamu alaikum. Can you 
Can you hear me better? Yes. Oh, this is much better. Yes. Please okay. go ahead, sister. All right. So I'll go back to your question. And I was saying the best thing to do when tackling a question like this, um, is it conflict? Is it war? Is it two-sided? It's to provide some basic historical context to understand the extent to what level the Zionist project will go to to fulfill the movement's ideology. So Zionism, in simple words, is a colonial project, and it dates way back to the 1880s, when it was founded and fabricated by a man who we call the father of Zionism. His name is Theodor Herzl. So he activated for the need of a Jewish state to end the plight of anti-Semitism in Europe, okay? He was convinced and had his mission of convincing the Jewish population across Europe, who've been living there for generations, by the way, the businesses were there, they raised families there, they were educated there, that they need a state to collectively all migrate to, and this state was going to be called their promised land. And this state was uh, Palestine. So in his book in 1896, Palestine was not actually the only destination that was considered for this Jewish state to be created in. It was, there was also actually Uganda and Argentina. So this, this guy, he had his options. And then he picked Palestine, which is not shocking. It suits the Zionist agenda. Palestine has major Jewish roots. So, okay, Palestine is going to be where this Jewish state is going to be planted, but at what cost, at what cost does this come to? So I'm going to just quickly fast forward past a lot of significant history, uh, Balfour Declaration and the UK's role in orchestrating the state to the 14th of May, 1948, when the Jewish state, that's called Israel, was declared and led by a man called David Ben-Gurion. Okay, he was the first official leader, leader of the Zionist occupation. And in that yeah, yeah. Time, if I, if I, sorry, I, I, I really hate to interrupt you, but I, th- yeah. I think uh, we, we wanted to. You know, the historic context is important. I do get that, uh, but with all due respect, because of the time, because we literally yeah, yeah, have yeah. like four, four and a half minutes. Uh, in, in in terms of this conflict, war, two sided, as I mentioned, the issue is the perception that is created in people's minds. Yeah. Today, so somebody the, the who has point. no idea about you know, maybe what's what's happening and what, what did happen 75 years ago and has yeah, been but happening. The, the whole point of the creation of the state of Israel was Palestinian expulsion. So it started with the Nakba and the Nakba has never, ever stopped. So yeah, look yeah. at Israel right now. It's a seven-mile strip of territory. Yes. Caged 2.2 million Palestinians and they're currently being carpet-bombed and massacred. So we can't call it a conflict. It's a genocide. Mm. And this Zionist project, it cannot survive without the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. Um, Yara, if I may, Yara, Yara, if I may, we, we, we are looking to, to, to look for resolutions. We're looking for de-escalation. de-escalation. And, and as much as I, I, I appreciate and I respect your, your perspective and your feelings, when, when we want to negotiate and when we want to find middle ground, words like genocide and, 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 you know, hard, hard-line words in a sense, which are hard-line emotional words, it, 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 it takes the argument away from the middle ground. And we are in a position where the Palestinians are in a predicament. And, and we need to find a way to, to create a ceasefire. How does they one... They rejected it. They rejected it. Yes, yes, they did. But if they've rejected it, does that mean we stop? And we just let things carry on. There's gotta be a, there's gotta be a way forward, and which is that's what course, that's what we're looking for. That's forward. what we're looking for. Historically, I agree with you. You know, but 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 to go back into history and to um, 
you know, you know, and to 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 think okay. that things are going to carry on the way they are seventy five years ago is okay. is not going to resolve anything. Okay, let's not talk about history. Let's talk about just two nights ago when they bombed the Al Ahli Hospital. Mm-hmm. How how can we talk about a ceasefire when they will wipe out a whole hospital where children are taking refuge, where there's doctors and there's patients and there's displaced Palestinians? It's meant to be a place of safety. It, it is agreed, agreed. But you know, we're not questioning. Um, we're not questioning that there are wrong things happening. We're not here to say that oh, this didn't happen. What we're saying is, how does one de-escalate this? And here at home, how especially how, in here, UK, how can how we can educate we educate this? the people properly? How can we de-escalate this in the UK? No, like as for, for no, no, no. What, what, I'm, what we're trying to say is, how does that happen here in the UK? How do you educate people about the reality of things so they can then exercise that pressure onto their government? Because right now, if I, I'll be very honest with you, yeah, with all that is happening in the world, social media, it's always a two-sided story. One is saying this, one is saying that. How do you make that informed decision? Which I fully agree with you 100% yeah. that you need to have that knowledge of the historic context you need to have 100%. the knowledge of what happened in the last 75 75 years plus years to understand what is happening today but how can i raise this to my government when we have sunak who just arrived to tell us sure. today and he's putting out statements oh we stand with israel we're mm-hmm. grieving with israel how can you really negotiate with someone that does not really see the destruction of Palestine for what it is. Okay. Yeah, we'll come back to you after the news. It's just 30 seconds, so do stay with us. We would like to ask you a few more questions, if that's okay with you. Yeah. Um, And also, for everyone listening out there, if you would like to have your say, just call us on 0208-687-7878. You can also send us a tweet at Voice of Islam UK. Don't forget, we're asking you a question on our Instagram poll about how you feel about this Israel-Palestine conflict. Sitting where you are, listening to the news and the stories that come in how does that make you feel would like to hear from you so go to voice islam uk on instagram and leave us a comment we'll be back after the five o'clock news don't go anywhere You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome back to the Draft Time Show here on the Voice of Islam today with myself, Raza, Brother Qiyum, and Brother Safir. We are speaking about the ongoing conflict in the Middle East, which has, uh, if you are aware, um, taken a very drastic turn uh, some 12 days ago. Um, right now on the line with us is uh, one of our guests, Yara Mahdi, who's a research analyst specializing in the Middle East with a master's in politics in the Middle East. Yara, assalamu alaikum and jazakallah khair for staying with us. Um, so, <laughs> I think before the break, we were trying to formulate that question and having um, an approach that would be applicable to today um you start off with the history i think we we had this in the program as well in the beginning of the show this very briefly but again so from brother kiyum's point of view the point was how does that help us 
in today's situation, the, the 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 humanitarian crisis that we're facing today, to raise awareness of the issue on you know the political stage, to go back to the political situation, uh, the the solutions that everybody is looking for, and which, to be frank, do exist, but you know have been taken up by um uh, by, by the parties involved. How do we do that? So, is the question about how we um lead to lead us to de-escalation yes because the thing is look we we do have parties on both sides and the issue is that you need to have that just approach right if we have six to seven million jewish people living in that area they're not going anywhere how do we continue from here how do we get to that place where we can say all right, mm. there has to be a solution to live side by side. So, so the question is like, what does what should resistance look like, right? If that, that's that's the interpretation you've taken. <laughs> what I would say is, how do you find middle ground? Where is the middle ground? How do I find the middle ground with Israel? Yep. How how can I answer that when they literally wiped out our whole hospital the other day? Okay. Are you seeing the videos? Agreed. There's no. So, so what's you, okay? There, there were Yara, Yara, your, your, what's your answer? What's your response to the hospital being wiped out? Well, it was a catastrophe. No, no, mm-hmm. I agreed. It was. What's the? What's what, my answer? What's my resolution? Yes, that's what we're looking for. We're looking. What's the next step? What do you expect from the international community to uphold human rights, to uphold dignity? of those living okay. living under under that occupation. Okay, well I mean if the okay, if the international community who who represents the international community, if it's the United States and the European elite, I don't really think it's of any value for me to really waste my energy to they're the ones who are directly funding what's happening right now in Gaza. So I mean look France, UK, US, Japan, they they didn't want the ceasefire, and, this, and these four countries, colonialism runs very deep. And also, Biden, literally just yesterday, he was like, okay, we'll send $100 million of aid for humanitarian assistance to Gaza, whilst he also sends off billions, billions of dollars to Israel to fund all of the massacres that are happening right now in Gaza and to fund the, the occupation army. So when it comes to the international community, I really don't want to limit it to those elites. Hmm. I think it should be reflected through the people of the world. Because look at this past week, we've seen millions of people across the world, from London to Morocco to Pakistan, all on the streets marching to end this brutal occupation. And I think right now our voices are more important than ever and all of us standing together in solidarity with the Palestinian cause and for the protection of their basic human rights is sending a powerful message of hope and resilience to those on the ground. Mm. And if, if, if we can send even a tiny little bit of hope, then it's our duty to commit to that, to be honest. Hmm. Now you mentioned after the question that I asked you, what does resistance look like? Yes. What does resistance look look like if it if it complies with international law? I think that's a very difficult question for us to answer, especially us living here in the West. Hmm. I mean, we we are sitting right now in our homes with running water, twenty four seven electricity, Absolutely, yeah. a full fridge of food. We haven't even experienced a crumb of the struggle the Palestinians have had to endure for generations now. And for us to sit here and tell them how they should or need to resist 
I think this is, we need to sit this one out because hmm. we are not the ones who have fallen victim to these immense levels of brutality. So how can I sit here and dictate how a freedom fighter should fight for his freedom? Um, what we're seeing in Palestine in Pal with Palestinian resistance is an armed struggle for liberation and an armed struggle has never in history looks pretty or peaceful. Hmm. Absolutely. And, and the next question perhaps is obviously linked to that, that many peaceful methods of uh, solving the situation have taken pl place over the last, you know, many years uh, in Palestine um, through various, you know, uh, dialogue, economics or legal routes. But do you think those have completely failed or do you think that there is a scope of, you know, something done differently could maybe work? Um, wait, sorry, can you repeat that question? Just I, You cut off. Yeah, so my question is, many peaceful methods of resistance have taken place over the last seven decades in Palestine, including cultural, economic and legal routes. Have these historically shown any any impact or do you think there is a future scope okay. of, of right. uh, these kind of uh, initiatives? Yeah. So I think there are many layers to colonial resistance and peaceful forms of resistance have this has this heavy feeling of vulnerability attached to them. So resistance through art, for example, is something I find very beautiful and very fascinating because through all of this pain and suffering, you still have the strength to pick up a paintbrush and tell the world how you feel without even speaking a word, without uttering any sentences. There's an artist I actually want to talk about. He's a Palestinian artist, of course, and I really admire and have a lot of respect for um, his work. His name is Sliman Mansour, and he was born in Birzeit in the Palestinian town north of Ramallah. And um, he's a very talented artist, and he really captures the beauty and the resilience of Palestinian culture very well. He has a very famous painting, actually, called Jamal al-Mahamil, and it means camel of grievances. Um, it's a painting of an old Palestinian man carrying the whole of Jerusalem on his back. So if you just look at some of his pieces, I think there is a lot of symbolism attached to um, Palestinian identity, resilience, and courage, which is a beautiful example of resistance because even when the, the occupier wants to eradicate your identity, there are artists who still pick up their brush and, you know, show the world what it means to be to be Palestinian. And actually in nineteen eighty, um there was an Israeli soldier that confiscated Sliman's work from his gallery based in Ramallah and they shut it down. They shut down the gallery because his artwork was apparently too political and he showed the Palestinian flags and the colours which was actually banned in nineteen sixty seven after 1967, no one was allowed to carry the flag or show its colours. So Aysan Badir was another artist who worked with him, they shared the gallery. He asked the officer, well, if I paint a flower with these colours, what will you do? He replied, well, it will be confiscated. Even if you paint a watermelon, it will be confiscated. And this is when the watermelon itself turned from something that was just a fruit to now a powerful image of resistance. And we see this um, image of watermelons uh, being painted by many artists in Palestine and the, uh, they're holding watermelons in the face of the aggressors and it's just a very simple but powerful image of resistance. So, you know, you want to ban the flag, okay, here's a watermelon, um, which they still feel threatened by, by the way. So, yeah, I, to answer your question, um, I think peaceful forms of resistance do have an impact and they will continue to do so. Thank you very much, Jazakallah, for your time. Um, greatly appreciate you coming on, Yara, um, and uh, you know, sharing some of your uh, experience with us and answering some of the questions that we had. Um, thank you. Thank you. Me. Thank you very much once again for 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 joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye.
Yeah, Mahdi, research analyst specializing in the Middle East with a master's in politics in the Middle East. Again, uh, you know, it, throughout and through everything you see, the injustice is there. Again, like with resistance, you see Western powers even support resistance in countries, in Syria, in Iraq. But once it's against the agenda of, uh, you know, certain political uh, set, then then it becomes an issue. You know, we we Yara, Yara was correct um, that uh, it's got to a point where, from a Western perspective, that how much can you show them? Yeah. But then I was hoping she would say, well, similarly to the Arab nations, what we were saying earlier, mm. that yes, okay, West exhausted, but then one looks at the Arab League. Mm. The, there is an expectation from the Arab League, as you said mm. earlier, that you know there needs to be an element of unity, the, the, and and that unity isn't there. Mm. So, is there a what? What is the responsibility of the Arab League at the moment? What should they be doing? Because clearly, we already know, as Yara correctly say, from the Western perspective, it's exhausted. Mm. There needs to be a new narrative, and that narrative has to come from people who do matter, yet they're absent, or they are disenfranchised. Everyone's doing their bit in their own corners. There isn't a collective voice. So w what's your take on what the Arab League of Nations need to be doing? I think it's 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 comes back to the point that we discussed in the beginning, wasn't it? That uh, there used, needs to be unity. There is no unity. There is no unity in terms of... But unity around seeking justice for Palestinians or unity around geopolitical issues? Just, Which Justice based on human values and human rights. Yes. And and again, look, this is not limited to one country, to one conflict. Yes, this conflict has come to the surface and everybody is talking about but I think we all agree on this. The world agrees on this. This didn't start on October 12th. Uh, yeah. October, yes. what was it? 7th. Yep. This has been ongoing. But again, many times when you go to the past when um, the, the issue of Gaza has come up in the news, it, the Arab world has stated if you don't solve this issue, we cannot move forward. But again, the question lies... What have you done about it? Mm. No, but this is this is where I I don't understand what that means. We cannot move forward. Yeah, they say it. They make statements. They come out in defiance. They talk about it. How the Palestinians are being wronged. Yet, lip service. There's so much lip service. And, and there is an element of double standard there as well. To be honest, because chapter look, four, verse one thirty-six. Yeah. That's all I'm going to say, man. I mean, Read it this, out. This, this is what God Almighty states. And again. We have an obligation. We have a responsibility as a Muslim, as part of this nation of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. I will say it if you agree or disagree with him. We know better. We should know better. We must, we do know better. Oh, you who believe, be strict in observing justice and be witness for Allah, even though it be against yourselves or against parents and kindred, whether he be rich or poor, Allah is more regardful of them both that you are. 
Therefore, follow not low desires so that you may be able to act equitably. And if you conceal the truth or evade it, then remember that Allah is well aware of what you do. We seem to think that this, everything that is happening in the world is limited to this world. It's not. That is the problem. We don't have a sense of Accountability. Accountab- uh, well, accountability, yes, but we don't have a sense of realization that we will be held accountable one day. This world will come to an end and no. God Almighty is going Listen, to ask him who is the I best think, of all judges. I think you're 100% correct. There is an absence of faith in God here in reality. If one was to be direct, there is no God here. Yeah. God is being spoken about that, oh, we should follow the rules of God Almighty, we should follow as Muslims, we should do this, this, this. But it's actually totally missing Mm. from all sides that, you know, women, children, elderly should not be targeted, irrespective. His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Musulam, the fifth caliph of the Promised Messiah, made it absolutely clear that in no circumstances should that happen in accordance with the teachings of the Holy Prophet, may peace mm. and blessings of Allah be upon him, that 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 is just, a, that we don't even think it, let alone do it. So clearly, there is disobedience of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. If From my point of view, I would flip it. I'll say, well, hold on, you're disobeying the Holy Prophet. Mm. So you need to correct that. Yeah. And we as Muslims need to say, hold on, that's what's happening. Yeah, we to set good examples because look, I mean, throughout the history, we've also seen how so-called Muslim countries have been oppressing their own people. Yes. So that yes. doesn't set a good standard for justice. How are but, you going to fight for some <laughs> some well, other? Well, that's the excuse in the West yeah. that they are throwing back at us that, hold on, you are, you are telling us about how we are not being humanitarian. Let's look at your own record. So in this narrative and this toing and froing, Who's losing? The Palestinians. Mm. The oppressed. It's always the people who lose. Exactly. But nobody says it, though, do they? Mm. How many times have you, how many mainstream media or even uh, remote radio stations do you find who talk about justice? Mm. Justice is for Israelis and for Palestinians. Of course. Not just for Palestinians. Mm. And that needs to be made loud and clear. We are talking about justice for all. Yeah. Always remember that if we seek to pursue our own interests at all costs, the rights of others will be usurped. And this can only lead to conflict, wars and misery. We must all reflect and understand the precipice upon which we stand. My message to the world is to look at tomorrow and not just today. Let us leave behind a legacy of hope and opportunity for our children rather than burdening them with the horrific consequences of our sins. This is His Holiness speaking, not last week, not yesterday, in 2009. Mm. And he has made it um, very categorical, 2017, sorry, I do apologize, six years ago. Mm. And again, look, this, this, this is what it boils down to. If we want justice for everyone and it has to be upheld for everyone, Put yourself into their shoes. Exactly. I mean, brother, me and you were talking about uh, again one of the m- major politicians here in the West. How uh, he met Palestinian children and how he was so sure yep. that if they were presented to, let's say, an Israeli family, mm-hmm. they would feel the same way about them that that he did. Yep. Uh, it was Barack Obama, by the way. Yeah. Um, and that's exactly what I was thinking. That 
it's it's I'll, I'll say it some people might not like this but you know those children that are losing their lives you take one from each side mm. you put them in front of both sides mm. if you're able to tell me the difference mm. in the value of their life mm. then we'll have a different conversation but they the key the value there you want to talk reality the value of life is so low i know and that's where the problem lies isn't it mm. we talk of humanitarianism we talk of food health we talk of water it's gone way beyond that the value of life itself has diminished to a point that th- that these catastrophes are happening and people are effectively people are like what about it that's what's happening what people have died and and this is the this is why say united kingdom we or the people around us we get emotional about it because we see this we follow this in the middle east because we either know someone or we have a friend or we mm, have family members mm. but if we were to look at the population at large th- th- for them this happened seven days ago yeah mm. that's why there is so much oh wow what's happened yeah. here suddenly mm. yeah and i think it's important for people to understand that this there have been l- massive loss of innocent lives before this so we have to put the value of life yes, same exactly, for all people exactly just before we move on there's a few um, reactions as well because we asked our listeners to share uh, their feelings on the current situation um with us uh, we've had a couple of uh, people uh, sending in their remarks obviously people showing that they're heart break broken by by what's happening um and uh, uh, nabahat uh, naira says that very distressed appalled and terrified uh, maria says feeling helpless and heartbroken at the same time and uh, another uh, listener saying depression anger helplessness and sadness and uh, it's very heartbreaking to see a massive loss of innocent lives on both sides and you know so, uh, i'll go back to it again some people have a very hard line reaction and that doesn't resolve the situation i i sometimes hear you know young uh, young guys on the street talking about destruction of this nation and that nation that goes nowhere that puts us in the same shoes as the people we're talking against so it makes the same as them so that cannot and ever be the way forward that is not the islamic way forward yeah. the islamic way forward is always middle ground and sometimes you know yes we're being wronged but we're willing to move on from that to find the middle ground now speaking about the reaction of the united nations because that's the next question that i would like to ask our next guest in just a few minutes or moments his holiness hazrat mirza masood ahmed he said thankfully albeit with much hesitation the united nations is at least now raising a faint voice in response to this development they have said it is against human rights and would create huge problems and so israel should think about their decision rather than unequivocally saying that it is wrong and instead of taking a stronger stance the united nations is making mere requests joining us now is chris devonshire who um is no stranger definitely to the uh, drive time show or to voice of islam he's the chairman of dezan shira and associates 
and publisher of the Middle East Briefing. Chris, good afternoon. Peace to upon you and welcome to the Draft Time Show. Good to be here. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for joining us today. Now, speaking about the UN, do you think that the concerns by the United Nations regarding the worsening humanitarian situation are being taken seriously? People are saying, are they even, you know, truly fit for the purpose and able to serve the objectives of why it was set up? What we saw um, at the United Nations Security Council, you know, the resolution brought forth by Brazil, then vetoed. Was that surprising to you? I don't think it was a surprise, um, but I do think that uh, it's... Um, uh, and I, I don't think that it's. I also don't think it's particularly fair to criticise the United Nations as, as a body. Um, I, I think that there are there's there's a lot of um, uh, intellect uh, and desire within the United Nations to to see solutions um, on, on a global basis um, come come to fruition. Um, so so I think that that. Um, that that desire is is within the United Nations. Where the so where's the problem? Um, well, the problem is that the United Nations, uh, in terms of its uh, inherent structure, needs to be uh, ne- needs to be reformed. Um, I mean, looking at the uh, the veto which you uh, uh, you just discussed, um, you, you've got um, twelve countries uh, who voted in favour of that. Um, uh, to, uh, to to deliver uh, aid to the uh, to the Palestinians in Gaza. Twelve countries voted in favour of that. One country voted against, and the uh, th- that's that's obviously not democratic. Uh, so the the way in which the United Nations is currently uh, organised in that uh, one country, uh, uh, and there are several countries that have a veto actually, but. Um, in this case, just one of them used that veto uh, to be able to set aside the the motion and and agree uh, on what should be done. That that is not a democratic position to take at all. Um, and the fact that the United States used that veto um, uh, at the UN, I think, shows that um, you know at the worst case, the United States is quite prepared to use democracy when it's in its interest but it's also not prepared to use democracy or prepared to abuse the democratic process when for some reason it's whatever is being discussed is not in its interest and that's what's happened so the 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 issue really i think has highlighted the fact that the united nations needs reform uh, and there are several countries in particular china and russia that have been very very uh, 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 vociferous on this the un needs reform uh, and this issue of the veto of the uh, of the Palestinian uh, issue is is a fundamental uh, uh, perspective to put on that as to the reasons why. Uh, frankly, this veto system is wrong. It's undemocratic, and the UN needs to be reformed to, to take into account uh, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the the say that the majority of uh, members want to have, not the minority. And the UN, the United States was in the minority on this. Um, Twelve countries voted for it, and it didn't get passed because of a veto. That needs reform. Now, Chris, for UN, for it to truly fit, to be fit for its purpose and to be able to serve the objectives that you so rightly mentioned, having the intellect and everything, but 
that intellect kind of not being able to put into practice what that uh, the wisdom that do do come out with with the veto makes the structure of united nations feeble where countries who have the veto they use that veto and to demonstrate that might is right um in order to change it is the countries who have the veto would have to agree to have the vetoes withdrawn what's the chances of that happening ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, we got, we've lost no, we've, got, we've lost chris. yeah today is one of those days it's, i do apologize to everyone out there we've lost uh, chris you know before we question. get chris oh, back we need, to, we need to get him back on yeah. that. that was a good question to ask um you know th- there is a wider implication of this mm. um i was i was reading um the, the news on the internet and one of the largest uh, uh, the, the person who who manages one of the largest hedge funds in the world he says bef- 12 days ago there was a 30 to 35% chance of a world war 3 he says after the past 10 days the chances of world war 3 has come from 35% to 50% mm. 15% increase over a conflict in 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 a in in middle east has increased the chances of a world war by 15%. Are you Chris back on the line Chris? Chris did you did you manage to hear my question? Uh yeah I did so sorry for that uh, That's okay. um, uh, cut out, cutting out there. Um so the, I think the issue was is the UN truly fit for purpose and able to set uh, serve the objectives of why it was set up. Well, well and and well, my question was my question was well the veto can only be removed if the people who have the veto agree to it and what's the chances of that happening Well um yeah that's uh, I, I'm not quite sure the mechanisms as um uh, as to how the uh, the voting procedures work at the United Nations overall um so I'm, I'm I mean they'll just I'm, veto I'm it won't they <laughs> I mean if well, um, <laughs> I'll veto your veto. I'll veto your veto. Well, that's if it. You have all, if you have all of the United Nations uh, members uh vote uh the the veto be taken away from the countries that have it. Uh I don't know if that's uh, I don't know if that's in the in the United Nations uh, charter to allow them to do that. Um Uh, now uh, just curiosity just is 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 there a number of vetoes countries can actually do is there a, a like or is it they can do they can veto you, anything you they want to, i i'm yeah i'm 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 not a, a legal expert on um the united nations charter so i can't answer that um so so i think that this means let, let's take two perspectives here first of all can you remove can the veto be removed yes or no so um Uh, if the answer is no uh then frankly i think that calls into um uh calls into some question the entire integrity of whether the united nations is fit for purpose today um and that then ushers in a question uh what would what would um if it and what what would be feasible to replace that that's really really huge question and i don't have the answer but isn't this history is, isn't this history repeating itself because after the first world war the league of nations was created and it it went down the same yeah. route and it had to be dismantled because again um it wasn't democratic in reality um and are we are we not well, kind of exactly going down the same route here i i think so um 
So I, I don't know the answer to the question. Can the, can the United Nations be reformed to the point of um, having these, uh, these veto mechanisms uh, removed? If not, then I, I think that um, people of other countries will start to look at an alternative body to, um, to replace the United Nations. Um, now, if the, the veto can be removed through some voting process, then, um, then that's perhaps a, a, an easier way out of the uh, situation. But for, for sure, the countries that already have that veto uh, will want to keep it. So there will be a dividing line between those that want to have it and those that do not. Now, this is exactly what China and Russia have been talking about when it comes to the, their, their statements that we need to have a, a, a multilateral uh, uh, world order rather than a unipolar world order, basically led by the United States, which is exactly what we've seen that happened in the recent veto of uh, the resolution concerning Palestine. So this division... Um, uh, this unipolar, which the West tends to think, oh, it's not really like that. But that's not true, because it is like that. Uh, and China, Russia, and I think an increasing number of member countries of the United Nations believe that to be the case as well, and do want to see uh, a fairer multilateral uh, world order be ushered in. Now, how you do that with the United Nations or without the United Nations is, is, is really the issue. I'm not an expert on, uh, on UN Charter or the law, so I can't really answer that. But we're clearly at a crossroads, uh, and a multilateral crossroads. Uh, the whole global community, uh, I think, is, um, uh, has concerns about this. Um, are we going to look forward to a multilateral world, or are we going to be um, still tied by the unipolarity of the United States and we kind of have to do what they say. Um, well, that's a really good question. Uh, and uh, I think if we go the multilateral route, then then we've got a global village again. And I think issues such as the Belt and Road Initiative are very much part of that. If we go down the unilateral route, then I think that the world is going to divide up uh, essentially into different blocks. It's sort of doing that now between the West uh, and, uh, and pretty much everyone else, frankly. Uh, so we're at a crossroads in, in, in where, how the world, how the globe, all the populations of the planet, all the different races, colors, creeds, how that is all uh, effectively managed and managed on a multilateral basis. That is a really huge question right now, and I don't think that there has been, uh, there's no real answer. So what's coming, I don't know. Unipolarity will mean that we'll enter into some sort of quasi-Cold War status, as was has happened before. If the UN can be reformed, then there is a chance that we may well usher in a multipolar world. Um, but how that works out is still very much to be determined. Well, the modern-day Cold War has begun now, hasn't it? No, I don't. I I think that's a little bit. Um, because, uh, because, um, well, and the, I'll, I'll kind of verify the question. Economically speaking, the, the, at the moment, it's China and America, um, and th- there is this this notion of the new world order, um, which 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 is being spoken about all the time, um, because the narrative needs to change. And as you so rightly say, you know, the the the, the West, um, in order to change the UN. 
um, that uh, notion of the, of the West having the, the, the final say needs to change as well. But on the other side, isn't the equation and the narrative exactly the same um, from a China and a Russia point of view? Uh, well, it's not just China and Russia. Uh, and I don't believe that the, the global economy is just purely about the United States and, and, and China. Um, uh, I, I think that you're seeing the emergence of blocks such as BRICS and BRICS Plus because they've just added in five MENA influential countries that takes effect from the 1st of January. Now, um, the interesting thing about the BRICS countries, the expanded BRICS, uh, is that each of those countries involved um, are, uh, are members of hugely significant uh, uh, free trade uh, organizations in their own right. Um, so despite the West saying it's, it's a strange grouping of countries, when actually you look at what those countries represent, uh, it makes a lot of sense. Brazil and Argentina, uh, about to become a new member, Hmm. Uh, potentially uh, are members of the Mercosur bloc, which is uh, the largest one in uh, uh, Latin America. Um, Russia has the Eurasian Economic Union. But if you look at the, uh, the Middle Eastern countries that are poised to, poised to join, uh, Egypt, um, Iran, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, the, uh, the United Arab Emirates, they're all members of the Gulf Cooperation Council, and that is, that is hugely significant. Hmm. Ethiopia uh, is a member of, uh, of an East African free trade uh, uh, agreement, but it's also close to, the, to that region. Now, when you, when you look at where the funding for China is coming from, uh, the, the, the foreign direct investment into China, there is a shift occurring right now uh, with the US uh, uh, FDI yeah. into China uh, starting to slow down, uh, and the Western media is making a lot of this. But what they haven't picked up is that... Um, the uh, the uh, the inv the foreign direct investment into China coming in from the Middle East has exploded, uh, and uh, I think that we're going to see uh, huge basically financing of, of what China needs uh, is going to be uh, directed from the Middle East rather than the United States. Now you you, uh, you mentioned so all you, you mentioned all coming. of these you mentioned all of these countries which defines the international community. And I kind of want to bring it back to the, the original topic of, of Israel. I mean, up till now, um, up till now, the the narrative has been the two-state solution. Do, how important do you think um, is it for the international community to recognize um, that that uh, two-state solution stays on, on, on target? Chris, I, I hate to be the one, but if uh, can we do this within a minute, please? I, I'm so sorry. Yeah, do you want me to answer that? I'm not. Yes, please, yes, Chris. Yeah. Um, well, I'm, I'm not an expert on I Israel's uh, foreign policy and relations, um, but um, it, it seems to me that um, the, the two-country solution, um, which hasn't been uh, hasn't been allowed to happen, uh, uh, and I don't understand the reasons why not. The West seems to be hesitant to allow this to happen. I do not understand why. But the two-country solution does seem to be uh, the obvious uh, way to solve hmm. what has been an ongoing conflict for decades. It seems ridiculous to to not take this final step to resolving the Palestinian situation. Yeah. And I do believe that the two-state solution uh, is almost certainly the way to go ahead. Wonderful. Why the West, the United States in particular, uh, seems to have um, seems to veto this is is out beyond my comprehension. I don't understand it. Uh, but I do 
have a feeling that the two-state solution is, is the correct way to resolve these issues. Wonderful. Chris, thank you very much again for, for joining us today. Chris Davenshire Alice, Chairman of Desan Shira and Associates and Publisher of Middle East Briefing. Thank you very much for joining us today once again. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Now, before we move on to our next guest who has been waiting, and we'll have to apologize to him, I quickly want to um, mention why. My biggest issue in all of this, I believe, was the media coverage. The reporting of this conflict in mainstream news has, has often been a subject of criticism and debate. This is an ongoing thing. We've had this so many times. Critics argue that the coverage can sometimes be imbalanced or oversimplified with a focus on you know the immediate violence rather than the underlying complexities of the con- of the conflict Hussam Zomlod who was the ambassador to the United Kingdom the Palestinian ambassador to the United Kingdom again was interviewed by someone yesterday and it, it took me it, it didn't take me long to be honest to compare interviews with him and with other people from mm. from you know from from other parties and and from other from the other side how the change of tone, how the change of questioning, how the change of introduction even. Change of sympathies. As well. Change of sympathies. How that leads someone to really, really, really think about and, and question, are, are you like, what are your intentions? Now here with us, uh, joining us now um, is our next guest for today. Amr Zahir is a Palestinian, an American, a comedian, a writer, a speaker, a law professor at the University of Detroit Mercy School of Law. And we're going to ask him a few questions about this issue. Amr, assalamu alaikum, peace upon you, and thank you so much for, for joining us today here on the Draft Time Show. Alaikum uh, assalam, thanks for having me. You are a Palestinian in the United States. If you have family and friends in Palestine, can we start by asking you, do you have any contact with them? Are they safe? How are they doing? Yeah, well, thank you for that. Um, uh, my family is from, uh, mostly lives in uh, Nazareth and Jerusalem, and they are uh, safe for now. But of course, throughout all my travels and throughout all my uh, shows and artistic uh, endeavors, I have met many people from Gaza, and I'm in touch with them all the time, and um, they are hanging on for life. Every one of them is afraid that at any time, many of them have had their family members uh, murdered in this war, and uh, they are worried every day that it is going to hit them. So, you know, it's very real. I, I think people underestimate how much Palestinians view ourselves around the world as one big family. Hmm. And so when this happens to one of our families, it happens to all of them. Hmm. Before we just got you on, I've mentioned just one of the examples that I have noticed um, yesterday um, uh, in, in one of the interviews that I saw. I think Hussam Zomlod has been quite well known over the past couple of days. He's been on, I think, every major news outlet. You also have the the Israeli ambassador, uh, ambassador, and it was two or three interviews that I that I watched back to back. I had to go back to them, and, and literally it was like ninety seconds intro, and the first question, and that that you will see the difference right there and then. What are your thoughts on the media coverage and and the way that our leaders have conducted themselves in the wake of the 
you know, escalation of this conflict? And what are you afraid that this, what's, what does that signal to, to, to those who are not aware of, you know, reality? Well, let me first say, Hassam has done an outstanding job of, uh, I think, getting our narrative out there. Um, but he's up against an entire machine. Yeah. Let's be clear. The media has been an accomplice in the dehumanization of Palestinians, Arabs, and Muslims over the last couple of weeks that has led to this very dangerous environment where they are justifying our mass murder, where they are blindly believing American and Israeli reports about things, especially about the hospital bombing on Tuesday. Um, last weekend in Chicago, a six-year-old boy was stabbed 26 times and yeah. murdered by his neighbor uh, because his neighbor hated Palestinians and Arabs and Muslims. And um, the political leaders and the media are complicit in creating the environment in which things like that can happen. Uh, I'll tell you, I, uh, I'm 46 years old. I was 24 years old when 9-11 happened. I was in graduate school. I grew up my whole life in America. Um, you know, I was born in Jordan, but we came here when I was three. So I spent my whole life basically in America. And my mother has only called me two times in my whole life to say, be careful. Hmm. And it was the day after 9-11, and it was the day after that six-year-old boy named Wadia was murdered in Chicago. So it's real for us. Yeah. And, and them creating this environment is dangerous for all of us. Uh, but we're not surprised, frankly but it is creating a lot of danger for us. Mm. You mentioned the uh, six-year-old, Padilla, yeah. who was brutally uh, murdered uh, in, in, in complete and utter uh, you know, hatred. Yeah. <clears throat> Do you think we're unfortunately going to see an increase in, uh, in uh, hatred towards uh, Arabs, Muslims, Palestinians. and Palestinians? Uh, I... I hope not, but I can say this, the media and the political leaders are doing nothing to help tamp down that environment or to help create a safer environment for, for us and for our children especially. I mean, when Biden, they are, they are massacring and committing a genocide on Palestinians. And Biden gets off the plane yesterday, or whenever, I think it was yesterday, in uh, Tel Aviv, and the first thing he does is give these guys, Netanyahu, a huge hug, like mm. telling everybody, these people are just like us. These people are our people. These people, and you know, in as much as uh, Israel is a European colonial project, you know, that's true. But this messaging um, doesn't help humanize Arabs. When you have the defense minister of Israel saying that we are going to attack animals, in Gaza, yeah. and um, and Netanyahu is hugging the prime minister. When you have the former prime minister, uh, I believe it was a British reporter, but maybe Australian, I don't remember, shutting up a reporter when asking when he was asked about civilian death. Yeah. That was Naftali Bennett, mm. and then you have Bennett, Biden getting off the plane and hugging them. When you have two governments that have been very hostile to, you know, we had a rally yesterday in Dearborn, Michigan, where we had a couple thousand people participate in a silent march to commemorate the victims. And what I said at that rally was very simple to the American government, to the Israeli government. We don't believe you. There is a long history of them lying. They lied about 
mass weapon and weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and a million Iraqis died as a result of that lie. Hmm. They lied hmm. about Shireen Abu Akhli for a year before they said, "Oh yeah, it was us." So we don't believe them. And and them hitting a hospital while we are devastated in agony to see our families torn apart, literally, we we are we we display a lot of emotions. But if you notice from Palestinians, we are never shocked at what the Israelis do to us because we have been used to it. It's been happening for seventy five years. And and for them to come out quickly and think that we're dumb enough to believe their manufactured recordings of some two Hamas operatives. Yeah. I mean, does anyone really believe that they were able to gather some recording of Hamas operatives, um, by the way, in the wrong accent, not even speaking in the right Arabic accent? Do they really think that we're dumb enough to believe that within 24 hours they were able to gather some recording of these Hamas, accent, uh, Hamas guys, but they were uh, completely caught off guard on October 7th? And uh, and uh, they still haven't been able to figure out where the hostages are. But they were able to get this conversation. I mean, we're not dumb. We're not stupid. We don't believe you. And uh, this, this is this is what the American government, Israeli government, does. And and killing civilians is part of what they do. I mean, Dir Yassin massacre in 1948, Tontura massacre in 1948, Elkana UN camp bombed in 1996. Uh, this is nothing new to us. And so um, we have to be very clear. But I, I actually think that we have the one thing. We, as the Arab world, the Palestinian community, and the Muslim world who stands behind Palestine, we have the truth. Nobody else has the truth. And when you have the truth, it's a very powerful thing. You don't need to have as many uh, resources as the other side. I mean, we have one Palestinian in Congress in America, and she makes APAC and the Israeli lobby lose their mind. They, they have conventions over how they got to get rid of her, and she's one woman out of 535. Now, if you're telling the truth and you're securing yourself, you don't care about one woman out of 535. You only care about one woman out of 535 if you're weak. So we are going to win, but in the meantime, we're going to have to deal with all these lies about us every single day. It's exhausting, but we got to keep doing it because we're going to win. Um, you you you're an American citizen. You live in America, and you know we we yeah. talk about the uh, the support um, internationally, which has been. I'll be honest with you, it's been unprecedented. Um, the amount of support that has uh, been shown internationally from 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 the layman, from the local person, who for, for yeah. and, and for a lot of people, this is something new. Um, so this is something I said earlier. We have been following this forever. Because we're Muslims, we have a we have a, yeah. a, an emotional interest. But for a lot of people in the West, this isn't something that gets picked up on on the on the news all the time. In fact, ever. Hmm. So it is De depending on who's attacked. Of course, depend exactly. That was my point. It depends on who's attacked. It's it's in the yeah. news when Israel is attacked. But the question I wanted to ask was, what is 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 there unity even in America within within the Arab community? Well, I mean, look, well, unity on on the greater issue of Palestine, yes, and there always has been. And what you're seeing unity now on, which you haven't seen before, is political unity between the camps that have said in America, look, we can't do the traditional Democratic-Republican thing. We get, we get sidelined when we do that. But then you've had a significant amount of Arab Americans saying, no, we need to have a seat at the table. Let's make sure we vote for one of them. And it's consistently been the Democrats because we need to be heard by them and have them on speed dial and all this kind of stuff. Now there seems to be a very strong unity that, no, 
the, we have been tricked by the Democratic Party and tricked by the political system, and we need to make our own way. And if that means voting for everybody except president next year um, to make a point, then we're willing to do that. You haven't seen that kind of unity before, and I think that's something very uh, positive. Well, but on your point of, uh, on, just 30 seconds on your point mm-hmm. about people around the world, mm-hmm. look, again, it goes back to the truth. People are not dumb. It is not hard, you know, remember, the side that's lying always wants to complicate it. And Israel always says this is complicated. It's not complicated. They stole our land. They kicked us out. They don't let us come back. That's why we're angry. That's why everything is happening. And people around the world are smart, and they figure that out. And it's because we've been consistent. We have not. We might be loud and scream, and we might be disorganized sometimes, and we might, you know, uh, but we're not lying, and we, we're not smart enough to all in, independently tell the same lie for 75 years. So this truth eventually makes its way through, and people are smart, and I think that's what you're seeing. Finally, what, what is, you know, we've been discussing for the past two hours, there is a, uh, the, 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 the justice that needs to be done, that needs to be there, is missing. How do you think we're going to bring justice to the table in order to move forward? Well, I think it might have to get worse before it gets better. And remember, yeah. politicians Agreed. and elected leaders are always the last people to do the right thing. Hmm. I mean, remember, America and Britain supported apartheid really up until the end, hmm. up until it was not sustainable anymore. Um, so we have to make sure that we as the citizens of the world, and this is why social media and all these things are so important, because they've leveled the playing field of information a little bit, that we keep talking about the truth and telling the truth. And justice will win eventually. Uh, it might take a long time because there are people who profit and people who profit politically and financially off of the massacre of Palestinians. But we will win. It is really about continuing to talk about justice and supporting each other when we do and lifting each other up. And so before I leave the two of you today, I want to say to you, first, salamu alaikum. I'm so proud that you are speaking up. Uh, for justice and what we always have to say to each other when we see each other at protests and when we see each other anywhere is we have to look at each other and say three things first of all we look at each other and we say i'm happy to see you today i'm proud of you and i love you and for the two of you i want to tell you that i'm proud of you and i love you and keep doing what you're doing Zakala, brother. we love Thank you too we love you too peace Thank be on you brother, brother. peace be on you brother all right Take free care. palestine all right assalamualaikum Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. If you love someone for the sake of faith, then do say express your love to him. I think that's the narration of the Holy Prophet, mm. peace and blessings of Allah be upon you, him. You mentioned the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. And you know, the Meccans did a boycott, didn't he? The worst yeah. possible <coughs> atrocity one can think of: boycotting food. You know everything we talk about. Yeah. yeah. The, the, and, and and yet, <clears throat> how did he treat the people who inflicted this on him? Mm. I think you're, you're absolutely right. Because coming out of this, we need to look ahead. Yes. We need to look ahead. How I think Amr is right. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Yes. Mm. And when it does get better, what will be your reaction? Yes. If God, like, I mean, God willing, hopefully the situation turns around and everybody can live a life that they deserve, you know, that a human does deserve. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, 23 years of persecution, 23 years of pain 
and and agony suffering. and suffering and he came back and his words were in the pr- words of prophet joseph there's no blame on you today yeah you look at the treaty of hudaybiyah again he was ready to compromise for the sake of peace for the sake of moving forward and look what that did to the muslim empire in the very beginning Mm. Wasn't that the reason why the Muslims were able to spread their message peacefully? And that's why His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmad, may Allah strengthen his hand on his Friday sermon when he spoke. He said, look, people who are on the other side, mm. it is them to be answerable for their own faith and for their own actions. But as Muslims, we have a responsibility to follow the teachings of the Holy Prophet and peace and blessings of Allah be upon him because he went through this suffering Mm. And he has taught us that how we need to be acting. We are not responsible for the actions of the other, yet we are responsible for our actions. Yeah. And I think there's another point that we haven't really discussed, but I think the most powerful point mm. for for all of us, all of the Palestinians, all of the people suffering, is prayers. Yes, of course, without a shadow. Sometimes we underestimate the power of prayer. That maybe not sometimes. There's we, 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 we do all the time yeah. all the time yeah. that uh, maybe you know prayer is not something that can we need to do something but first is what how, what are we doing in terms of prayer if our relationship with Allah the Almighty we try to make it as strong that we collectively pray for mm. the suffering of people for justice in the world and this is something that you know the Holy Prophet of Islam Prophet Muhammad peace and blessings of Allah be upon him used to do you just talked about Mecca right yeah. and at uh, the time when when he was going through so much persecution, the Muslims were going through persecution. I still remember now that, you know, the companions asked, uh, you know, let us, you know, let us give us arms so we can, you know, fight. And the Prophet said, wait, you know, wait, this this is not the time, you know, do prayers. And uh, those prayers completely changed the future for, for Muslims. So we, we should always keep that yeah. in mind that we should pray for each other and um, as His Holiness uh, the head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community has said that we I can actually read it out as well he said that if the Muslims unite and are one they will have a strong and impactful voice may Allah guide the Muslim powers so they may unite in order to establish true justice and may the major world powers of the world also be granted right mindness um, so that instead of taking the world towards destruction they try to save it they should not make it their objective to simply fulfill their selfish desires. They should always remember that if and when there is destruction, the major powers too will not be safe from it. That's such a strong yeah. point right at the end that mm. the major powers will not be safe if they think so. However, going back to the most important point you made, His Holiness, when you talked about prayers, he referred to the only weapon to be used at this time which will be useful yeah. would be the weapon of prayer. Yeah. And because, that is very significant. Because you see that there's no comparison in terms of might, in terms of uh, power. There's no comparison. Yes. You know, it's always it's so easy for us to go out to the streets and, and, and do protests. Again, I'm not, I'm not saying anything against protests. If they're done in a peaceful way and if they fulfill the purpose, why not? That's your decision. But how many people were there on protests in London last week? 50,000? More, more, more. Let, more let's assume, fif- say, let's assume 50,000. Okay. How many of those 50,000 who were Muslims went to the mosque the next day for, mm. for, for the Fajr prayer, for the morning prayer? That's 
the most difficult part. It's easy, again, don't, don't take me wrong, it's easy to go out onto the streets and to spend a few hours there, chant, you know, wave the flag and whatnot. But how many of them, how many of us are in their prostrations praying for the Muslim world, praying for the world at large? As holiness has always included everyone in the world, not just for your own people or for your own um, a group that you belong to, no, for the entire world. There is a promise by God Almighty in the Holy Quran that if if this if the oppressed calls out to me, I will answer him and remove that evil and make you a successor in the earth. So that is something that we wanted to get across to you that the power of prayer is something that we never we must not underestimate with the hope and with the prayer that this world turns into the right direction that we may be saved from destruction and for the prayers from for all of us from both sides from all of us here assalamu